Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, we are joined by Jake Rouse, the co-founder and CEO of Braxton Brewing Company. Jake leads the company's strategic vision and execution and is primarily responsible for bringing the taproom of the future to life. Jake focuses on the unique ways technology can enhance the beer drinking experience. He founded Braxton Brewing in 2014, led the company to becoming the most funded brewery project on the popular crowdfunding website Kickstarter by raising 71000 in just 30 days. Jake also works closely with high-growth, early-stage startups in the Midwest through JVR. There, he helps these companies leverage best-in-class B2B marketing and strategic alliance practices. Jake also previously spent time at Exact Target, where he led partnerships and strategic alliances at the company as the company grew dramatically in 2012 and acquisition by Salesforce.com for $2.7 billion in 2013. Jake, Welcome to the show, my friend. We are grateful to have you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Man. So tell me in your own words, how the hell did this company start? Oh, man. That's a, you know, it's a fantastic question. I, you know, Drew, I went, I grew up in Northern Kentucky, uh, you know, always thought I would start something. Never in my mind thought it would be in beer. Never thought it would be with family. Uh, graduated from a local high school here and convinced my parents to send me to Indiana University, which has one of the top entrepreneurial programs in the country. Um, and what I fell in love with there was that most of the professors who were teaching entrepreneurship had their own businesses. So you were learning from people who were doing rather than just educators. When I graduated from IU, I had a couple of really, you know, interesting kind of at a fort crossroads, right? Kind of an interesting you know, how do you want to do this and where do you want to go? And had the option to go into strategic consulting or technology. And at that time, you know, my brother, who is the real talent behind Braxton, he, he creates all of the products and is the brewer and all that. And, you know, he, when they dropped me off my freshman year, this was back in 2009, 2010-ish, craft beer really wasn't a thing in the Midwest at that time. I mean, it had grown on the coasts, but wasn't really much. There'd been really just two breweries in the greater Cincinnati area. So we had lunch at a, a little brew pub called Upland Brewing Company in Bloomington, still one of my favorite restaurants and breweries to this day. Uh, and we were, my brother is, you got to understand my brother, he's, he's enamored by the fact that, you know, he's kind of an engineer at heart. He would take apart mechanicals and put them back together just to see if he could make them work again. And you know, at 16 years old, we're sitting at this brew pub and he's like, what, what are you guys doing back there? You can kind of see the windows and the glass of yeah. all these big tanks. And, you know, the, the, the waiter was like, well, you know, we, we make our own beer and, you know, you're way too young to have any, but we, we make our own beer here. And everyone goes, wait a minute, you can, you can make your own beer? Like that's a thing. And so they gave us a quick brewery tour and on the drive back from Bloomington to uh, Northern Kentucky, my brother tells my dad, hey, we're going to start brewing beer. And on his iPhone, he orders a homebrew kit. Uh, and that's kind of where it all begins. So wow. as I progress through IU, he's kind of taking those leaps, right? And, and all of a sudden, my junior year of college, you know, he's winning best of show medals at the age of 18 years old 
and he can't even drink. So he's like entering these beers into competition and winning all these medals. So, you know, I'm, I'm interested, I'm, I'm interested in this, right. I'm coming home from college. There's all these different beers on tap in the garage. And I'm like, well, this is kind of fun, but just like every great cook wants to start a restaurant, every home brewer really wants to start a brewery. And we sat down and said, you know, you really need to understand the business aspect of it. And, and frankly, we need to understand what makes a beverage company of any, uh, any sorts successful is innovation, consistency, and quality. Mm. And I looked at him and I'm like, you know, you're 16, 17 years old. What is it about, you know, how, how do we get some of these skills underneath you? Unfortunately, one of our family friends uh, was one of the partners at a local brewery here in Cincinnati or Northern Kentucky called Hofbrauhaus. House familiar with Hopper House in Germany. They're the oldest brewery uh, in Germany. Uh, they have a franchise unit here in Northern Kentucky. It's about a mile and a half from where we are. And I reached out to him and I said, hey, you know, my brother's interested in learning a little bit more about the commercial side of this. Um, I understand that the age could be an issue. So we reached out to local ABC and they were like, if he doesn't drink, he can certainly work. And so cool. they hired him on as a grunt and he would, uh, he'd start cleaning tanks and polishing and and all that. And then about a year in, they fired the assistant brewer and hired him because he showed such an aptitude. And so at 18 and a half, he's the youngest commercial brewer in the oldest brewery in Germany's history uh, and really starting to learn what the Germans can teach you, which is process and scale, right? Process and scale and quality. And so I graduate from IU. I decided to join this really fast growing technology firm called Exact Target. It's an email marketing platform. Uh, I joined them in 2008, 2000, no, 2011, 2011. I was there. I had started working there junior, senior year. Um, the executives of that company became my mentors because I felt like, you know, while I really wanted to start something, I had a lot to learn, had a lot to learn about scale, had a lot to learn about um, growth and how growth can feel both positive and negative. Um, and that was the best opportunity. So when I joined, uh, I was employee number like 220. Uh, and in the summer of 2014, we, the technology firm, were acquired by Salesforce.com uh, for at the time, the largest technology acquisition in the Midwest, uh, 1.4 billion. Um, it was remarkable. And those, you know, at, at that time, I was the chief of staff for our, our chief marketing officer. Uh, who became my closest mentor, still friend to this day. Um, and I learned so much about scale, about growth, about strategy, uh, and, and really got to you know sit in on a lot of the, the inner learnings of how to do this. And so once the acquisition happened, I, I made it through about a year of the earnout, a year of the uh, you know kind of integration. And they looked at me and at that time, you know, I'm, I'm 22, 23, and they've got me flying all around the country, which is awesome. Like, you know, you're on a plane every Monday, back every Thursday, but, you know, I, they looked at me and they're like, hey, you know, I'd, I'd really love for you to move to San Francisco. That's where the future of, of this organization is going to be. And we're still going to have offices in Indianapolis, but, and I'm just like, you know, I, I saw what I needed to see. And, you know, the earnout was, was pretty fantastic for everybody involved, uh, but not, you know, not life-changing for an entry-level employee like myself. Looked at it and looked at my brother, came home one afternoon in the, in the garage and said, you know, you've been doing this now for two and a half years. I believe you know how to commercially produce beer. You're still passionate about it. Um, 
I think we can raise the money to start a brewery in Northern Kentucky. And at that time there were really only three or four. Um, and I'm like, I, I think there's a really big uh, opportunity here on that, on the Kentucky side of the river, because everything was starting in, in Northern or in Cincinnati. So he was like, you know, I'm, I'm interested, you know, not really knowing what that means. Neither one of us really knew what that means meant at the time. Right. And I went back to my mentors and I said, Hey guys, you know, I appreciate the offer to move to San Francisco, but uh, we've been kind of talking about this loosely and it's time for us to give it a shot. And uh, ironically, they were the first checks in uh, to raise when we raised our funds, our real funds, the Kickstarter was a great marketing tactic, but you can't start a brewery with all this equipment on 70. Right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a proof of concept, right? Yeah, exactly. So they were, uh, they were the first checks in and uh, since then have helped along the way. And, uh, that's that's how we got this the story off. It's it's authentic, right? We're a Braxton Brewing Company. We got started on Braxton Drive, uh, and, and frankly, we our brand is all about that American dream. It's about the idea that you can start something from nothing, no matter what your background is, as long as you have the right hard work and and intentions. Man, yeah, so many great companies starting literally from their garage, just uh-huh. like yours. Uh, I want to go back just a little bit on a few things. So one, you, you said when you were talking to your brother initially, you helped him understand or you, you, you pointed out that innovation, consistency, and quality were the keys to a business like this. Where did you learn that? Where did those three things come from? Well, ironically, you know, I was my very first internship in college was with a, a beverage company in Chicago. It was called Bean and Body. They were a coffee producer, but they were making way ahead of their time. I mean, t- 2009, 2010, they were making ready to drink coffee beverages, kind of like coffee energy drinks um, yeah. that were, you know, canned and, and fantastic. But to me, like I learned a lot through that process and just studying the beverage market because, you know, quality and consistency has morphed at Braxton. Whereas, you know, to us, quality is consistency. And, and that is like the number one kind of, anchor to our quality statement. Uh, and we, we say that because, you know, it, it doesn't have to be like a lot of people think quality means like, oh, my God, you got to use the highest ingredients. You got to use the best and, and the longest fermentation times and all that. That's not true. Like Heineken is a prime example of this. That product is I enjoy Heineken every once in a while. Right. Sure. It has a natural skunked flavor. Why? Because when they first started importing it into America, the green bottles got light struck and skunked the beer. All of Americans understood that's what Heineken tastes like. And now it's so critical to their flavor profile that they add that flavor into the product. Wow. Any brewer would tell you it's a flawed product, but it is high quality because it's consistently the same. And so for us, it's like, all right, as long as we know that we're adhering to those processes to make the product consistent every single day, then we know we can scale this thing. Man. It reminds me, and I, I can't remember the exact story, but there's like a, there's a bottle, oh, uh, of bitters. Have yeah. you ever heard the story of bitters and like the oversized, ah. the oversized labels, uh, um, wrapping around it? Oh. I can't remember the exact story either. I'm gonna look it up though. All I know is it was a mistake. Like okay. when they went to like, when they went to like a trade show or investors or something, they had like a printing problem. And what they were left with was like an oversized label that didn't actually fit the bottle. And they were like, screw it. We got to just do it anyways. And it worked. And someone gave them the advice like, hey, this, as odd as it sounds, kind of makes this bottle stick out. Like, leave it that way. 
And so they did. And it's like very similar to that idea of like the skunking problem becomes just part of the product and you keep it going. And it's like, cause I've always wondered that too. It's like the Angostana bit bitters or whatever. Yeah, right. I'm gonna have to look that up. You're like, why is that thing? Like, it doesn't fit the bottle, you know? <laughs> right. And it just got kind of built into the lore of this is this product. Right. Um, I want to, I want to kind of pile on that. Cause we're talking about like some of the keys you've learned about building a business. You mentioned the mentors you had at that first company were also really critical in helping you understand process and scale. Does anything come to mind that you could point your finger to that you learned from them that you've actually seen applicable in the building of your own business? Oh, absolutely. I, you know, and it, and I'll tell you this cause I'm, I'm sure at some point we're going to zig into where we are now and how COVID uh, kind of affected everything. But I'll tell you, that's been the biggest challenge currently for us is that, you know, Drew, we're, we're a business that I brought a tech mindset to a brewery, meaning we doubled the business every year uh, until COVID and we did things differently. We approached the market differently. We looked at things differently. And one of the things that we learned the best from them was, was, you know, the answer, the answer should never instantly be no. You should always start with yes if it's a good idea and then spend the rest of the day, month, week, whatever, trying to kill that idea until you cannot kill it. Mm. Right. And I think that that mindset is so different for a lot of brewers. In fact, I would argue that mindset, us coming out of COVID, which is the first time we've ever had to deal with loss and you know losing and, and I'll, I'll call it micro failing, like the business is still operating, but we have the overnight and uh, it was the first time we've ever had to lay anybody off and it was a cultural devastation. Sure. We're still, we're still unpacking it. Right. But the biggest thing now is like, you know, back prior to the pandemic, it was, why wouldn't we do this? And now I find our, our leadership team and ourselves asking more, why are we doing this? And it's like that mindset shift is not good, especially when you want to be a little bit different. So I yeah. think that, I think that those things, you know, you, you learn those things, you find really big problems and you run toward them rather than away from them. And those things are what I think separates us and our ability to grow from a lot of other breweries. Yeah. So what did that look like uh, in the earlier stages of the business? What were some of those, those things yeah. that you ran towards and differentiated yourself with? I mean, a prime example is, you know, we've, what I think my job is at Braxton Brewing Company is, is to understand consumer preference and inspire and build the team to, to grow the company around it, right? And so a prime example of this, in 2018, which was 2017, um, I saw firsthand what hard seltzer was becoming. Um, I was, it, I'll never forget it. I was on a ride along, which is something in craft beer where we have a three-tier system and I'm not going to bore you with all the details, but we sell to a distributor who sells to the end account. Well, every once in a while for morale, you bring your entire sales team to ride with your distributor uh, to go meet the accounts who are buying their products. And that's cool. I always, I always do it uh, with our sales team because it's good for morale. And it's, I really like talking to customers. I, I really like, what are you seeing that, uh, that no one else is seeing and, and all of these things? Well, they always put me, because there's an ongoing joke, we always have a competition when we do these ride-alongs that you know, you're trying to sell more than the other on your route. And they always joke that no one ever says no to the founder. So they always put me on the worst route. Like 
the le least craft uh, centric route. So I was doing a ride along out in Grant County, Kentucky, which is like literally 40 minutes south of Cincinnati. Not very crafty, but I, I wanted to do it. And I'll never forget the, the sales rep I was with pulled into a, a grocery store and said, hey, if you don't mind, I got to take a quick inventory because there's this product that I have that I can't keep on the shelf. And I just want to see how much they went through this week. And I'm like, I'm interested. Let's see. We walk in and it was White Claw. And I'm like, mm. in 2017. And I'm like, interesting. Um, what do you mean you can't keep it on the shelf? And they're like, yeah, we just, we can't keep it on the shelf. And I'm like, the Grant County that I know, you would, I mean, you would get beat up for drinking White Claw. Like that's, you know, not the thing. And so I started diving into the market and understanding it. And like, everything just clicked. Like, it's better for you. It's light and easy. It's yeah. economical. Like all of these things were converging into what I felt was going to be a massive product. So went to my brother who then spent two years developing what became our Vive brand. And we launched Vive in 2019, uh, actually at the end of 2018, um, to be the first regional hard seltzer. And it was on a rocket ship. Now, wow. now, <laughs> What we subsequently learned was it is very, very difficult and almost impossible to compete for mass appeal against international conglomerates whose marketing budgets are bigger than your entire business. But we did learn a lot. And I think we, you know, as we evaluate our, our hard seltzer line now, uh, looking toward the future, I think there's a lot of conversation around where does that sit now in, in a landscape where you know, COVID hit at a certain time and when it hit, you know, it, it everyone else was able to catch up to us. And so it was, it was really interesting, but you know, you, you basically are able to run at these things and it yeah. was hard and I'll, I'll never forget this Drew. And I, I think we learned a lot. It was hard internally. I mean, we had these passionate craft brewers who I would go down and meet with them and say, Hey, you know, I know you're all passionate about making these great IPAs and these great, you know, loggers and stouts. And I'm never going to ask you to not do that. But for the sake of the business, I'm going to ask you to brew a very high quality sugar water. And this is why this matters. And try and, I mean, culturally for six, seven, eight months to get them to understand that, that this was the, you know, the real deal. And now, I mean, they're on board, but it was, it was tough, but it oh, worked. Sure. It was worth it. Man, you bring something up that I think is really brilliant on your part. And that's getting out of the office in a sense, like whatever the, the day-to-day -day world that you exist is taking your team and going on these routes where you're actually interacting with customers, the, the conversation you had with that distributor, you know, or that store owner that, that had the, the seltzers flying off the store is a great example of something that got you that information earlier rather than later because you actually were out there. And it's, it's, I don't know if it feels like, um, a luxury that some people feel like they can't afford. Like I'm so busy. What do you mean? I'm going out just meeting people in case so it's like, no, but you get stuck in your own world and you assume, you know what the needs are or the problem is or the desires are. And you don't go out and regularly interact with just the everyday person who's in your target market. This podcast, you know, was our, I told you that before we got here, that was our thing it was like, you know, what we could do. I could be talking to instead of the dozens that our company is serving of, of founders of fast growing companies, we could talk to hundreds and you see data emerge. You find out what they're actually stressed about. You find out what the actual issue is. And I just, I would love for you to speak to that for a second. How did you even think to do that? Like to go out and go on these ride alongs and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. I, to be honest with you, like 
and I think that frankly sums up a lot of what we're not doing now um, because we're, we're not like, I can't even tell you the last time I've, I've done something like that. Right. It's COVID and, put you in survival mode, right? Yeah. And, and that's not a mode I really like to be in sure. <laughs> at all. Um, but you know, it, it isn't even just a luxury. I would argue it's a necessity, especially, especially in beverage. Like we're waiting on fast. We're waiting on consumers to tell us like, what they want and they usually don't tell you what they want unless it's through dollars and dollars take time to emerge to trends, which, and so I, I think that for me, like any, any founder, like I, that was one of the biggest things we learned about exact target was our, our chief technology officer, which you would never imagine a CTO. He would always like, there were always heated debates about what features get developed, how much we're spending on development. So all of that, right he would always win those debates because he would spend all of his time with customers. And it's like, if you just, as a founder of a business, yeah. if you just talk to your customers and give them what you, what they want well, consistently at a fair price, you will win every time. Yeah. Well, and that, and it seems so simple, but people don't do it. And I don't, I don't know why. Um, yeah. We don't end to be honest with you. We don't, we don't do it nearly as much as we should. Same. But, but we, you know, I still think that we do a lot of it and, you know, it's, it's really interesting. It's yeah. interesting what they tell you too, because the other thing that is interesting and it, it takes time to understand this is a lot of times the lie, hmm. you know, and prime example of this, we, we developed Vive. Uh, we thought there was a need in the market for a hard seltzer that wasn't nearly as sweet as a truly or a white claw or the national competitors. So we developed Vive to be more naturally essence, tastes more like soda water with a hint of fruit. It was a great product and it worked really well. But at the end of the day, if you really want to compete, customers want sweet things. They'll tell you that they want less sugar, less fat, less. But McDonald's is still a billion and a half dollar company for a reason. Like, yeah. And so, you know, they'll, they'll vote with their wallets differently, which is an interesting tidbit. Yeah, man, I'm trying to find the exact questions, but I have a friend and somewhat of a business mentor. Um, his name's Dane Maxwell and he's, he's started several SaaS companies and markets. You just wouldn't think to do it in, you know, like, and the way that he did it and he, he kind of teaches us now often is through five questions. And it's the same idea. Like talk to somebody that you think might be a potential customer and just ask them these five questions. And one is just like, what's a problem you actively think you, you think about you know that bothers you consistently he'll ask another one like if you could make if you could wave a magic wand to make it go away what would that look like what would that magic wand be and then he'll ask him like, what would you be willing to pay for that solution and he'll just ask these five questions i mean dude he, he ended up starting a business for a masseuse he was literally laying on a table and he's like hey what's a problem you have often as a masseuse and she was like you know you know cancellations and keeping clients for a long time and he was like okay what would it look like? And he went through this whole questionnaire and afterwards he went and literally went home and built a product, called her back like a week later. I was like, would you use this? And she was like, yes. And it was just a messaging system to That's like keep, to keep up with the clients and ask them how they're doing and blah, 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 blah. And it, it like tripled her business, you know? That's awesome. And I'm like, man, again, we make the assumption we know what the problem is. Right. And then we go and build a solution and then we try to force it on the customer instead of going like, what do you really want? You know, the other thing that I, th I think I'd be curious to ask you about because you're in technology is that sometimes, like the Steve Jobs kind of thing, 
that doesn't work if it's truly innovative, right? Because sometimes the, the market doesn't know what they want because they don't even know that a solution like that could exist. Oh, we have, I mean, you know, it's so funny. You, you said, Drew, you, in your introduction, you know, you read the, the bio and boilerplate that our team sent over talking about the taproom of the future. Yeah. That is a prime example. I actually fired off a quick uh, text message while you were reading that to, to our team and said, let's, let's update our boilerplate and bio because that was one of those things where coming from tech, I felt strongly that beer is a world that needs to be disrupted. It is why the inefficiencies are unbelievable. Being a founder in the beverage space and the beer space for seven years now, those inefficiencies still to this day make me cringe. Mm. But, but due to market dynamics, due to external forces, due to regulation, no one's ready for that disruption. And so yeah. we started down a path of let's be the taproom in the future. Let's invest in all this high tech stuff. Let's, you know, let's find a way to connect consumers through data and understand their preferences and all that. We have executed maybe a tenth of it. And, and a lot of that has to do because number one, at eight, seven, eight years ago, the technology wasn't readily available. I think if we'd be more successful doing it now, uh, and number two, consumers weren't ready. I think they probably are ready now because I think the acceleration of trends during COVID have pushed consumers more and more that way. Yeah. We, we abandoned that somewhat. And we basically said, you know, we just, we need to be a really great community brewery. And here's what that looks like in our definition. Uh, and that's what's, that's what's worked with, with us from, uh, from every day. Yeah. Yeah. So we're talking about the ideas of the future, yet we're, we're on the back side well on the new front side of another <laughs> yeah. freaking pandemic is it ever gonna end right but you know let's just let's look back for a second you, you your business got massively disrupted like you mentioned uh you're now somewhat on the back side of that even though we don't know what's coming down the pipe but at least it were, you're open again and people could come in and that kind of thing uh how would you describe the effect that that last year had on you and then how are you working to get back to a new normal yeah that's a great question. Um, it was devastating. And I, I don't use that word lightly. So as I mentioned, we had we had doubled the business every year. Uh, we had grown to 72 employees. Wow. Uh, overnight. I mean, our, our most profitable area, we sell beer to, to grocery stores and retailers and whatnot. But we also sell beer directly to consumer across four locations. Way more profitable to sell direct to consumer. So our most profitable aspect of the business went to zero overnight. Uh, so we subsequently went from 72 people to 12. Um, Dang. We had to. I mean, yeah, we had just to, to keep the lights on. Now, we've built back to, I think we're sitting about 48, 49. Um, but the challenge that we're dealing with now, and, and frankly, Drew, I mean, it, it, you know, you, you talk to founders of businesses, right? So yeah. I'm sure you're hearing this a lot. It was as much and still is as much about me getting my head right to come back to this fight every day. Mm. Because at least when we were growing, you know, growth is hard. Growth is painful. Growth is lonely. There are a lot of mistakes that you make. There are a lot of things that happen. But you at least see your work paying off, right? You see this organization pushing toward the, the brighter future that you believe we're headed toward. Something like COVID happens where you're literally moving at a million miles an hour and you come to a standstill. 
So all of my conversations, which were with customers and, and employees and team members turns to politicians and lobbyists and bankers and lawyers. And how do we keep this business afloat? How do we make sure we have enough cash to get through what could be six months? I mean, I remember when it was two weeks to slow the spread. I mean, yeah. it was, ah, you know what, we'll close for two weeks. We'll be fine. You know, it, it'll be a hit, but, you know, yeah. let's figure we'll out what flatten the curve like, and then we'll be back to yeah, our day. Right. And here we are talking about it two years later. And and I, I say that because I think it is as much my leadership. And, and I mean, I went through dark days, the darkest days of my life. I'm a single guy. I'm 31 years old. Building Brax over the past seven years has been my life. Yeah. And you realize through a pandemic just how little control you really have despite how hard you're working. And it's a wake-up call. I mean, it is an insane wake-up call. And now, you know, I finally come to terms with this is a new normal, you know, and, and, and it is so easy to play victim. And, and I probably let ourselves play victim for a lot of that past first year of COVID. Um, but we were trying to push some unique ideas out, you know, like, yeah. like you, you know, we, we sat down and said, okay, you know, if I can just get the Kentucky state legislature to let us direct ship beer via UPS, we can probably open up a whole new customer band. And we sent our lobbyists and ourselves down to, to petition, like, give us this right. And it passed. And so we, we rolled wow. out an entirely new e-commerce world, which we learned a lot through that. We're actually, we're actually now one year later, closing it and relaunching it because of what we learned. But what I'm, what I'm getting at, and it sounds kind of like we're all over the place is that I think the mental anguish of going through COVID as a founder, meaning, you know, a lot of your best friends or employees like that's cheesy, but these are people oh, who are putting yeah. in, putting in their daily work for seven years to build this business alongside of us to now, you know, having to lay them off, having to have all that now coming back. It's like, okay, what am I doing personally to get myself excited about coming here? I mean, I, and I was, I had, we had an all hands meeting. I'll never forget. We had an all hands meeting in May because May was the first time where June was going to be the day they lifted restrictions, June 1st in Kentucky and, and whatever. So we got everybody together. We closed down production for a day in May and we said, you know what, here's the deal. And I just, I shared with them an insanely transparent story. I told them, I said, you know, for the past year, I've, I've not wanted to come into work. I've had no interest in doing this. I, I would, I would literally drive 20 minutes out of my way on my commute to get a coffee, to just delay, delay getting into the office. Yeah. Um, and, and I would, and I was just, and I just told them why, because I didn't have all the answers. I, I used to have all the answers. I used to, you know, this is, this is a, and it was so catastrophic and different and unique that my brain somewhat changed and it wasn't about growth and unique things and all that. And, and what the entire story was, is like, we have to forget that we have to learn from it, but we have to move on and, and we have to close the book on what we think COVID was and understand the world has changed. This is not going back to normal. And I, that was the first thing I told our team. I'm like, it, it is never going back to normal. Like yeah. there are fundamental things that have changed. One of them, uh, you know, the migration of people moving to urban cores was accelerating. And now that has completely reversed. And you now see people like suburban nights are, are becoming a thing. 
Uh, we even see that now in our data, our suburban accounts are outperforming our urban accounts. And that was never the case, especially for craft. And so challenging our team to say, guys, coming out of this, how are we going to get excited? And my commitment yeah. to them was that I'd bring it every day. And if I, if I wasn't prepared to bring it, I wouldn't show up. Mm. Like it was, we got to bring that level of energy and creativity. And, and, you know, that was in May and, you know, have we been perfect on it? Probably not, but I think we're getting better. And I, I think we're having the right conversations that are talking about what is the future of this business that we're building because it has changed. Mm. And I think, you know, next week we've got a bunch of meetings around that as well, because like you said, it's now we're on the cusp of a, was a fifth wave, sixth wave, who knows, yeah. but we're on the cusp of this thing still not going away. Yeah. And I think even my most, even my most conservative predictions had us back to 100% normalcy without consumer fear in Q3 of this year. Mm. And now I don't think that might even happen until Q2 of next. Mm. So how do we operate within the world that we have today? to be able to grow the business again and have fun. Mm. And I, I mean, I, I don't want to go too, I don't want to go like too off the cuff and kind of, you know, all over the place. It's great. Have you, do you ever watch Ted Lasso? Yes. I love it. I'm so okay. mad that then I'm, I'm caught up. I want the next episode to come. Uh, out. Me too. But that last episode where he gets Roy Kent to join yes. the team again is how I feel with Braxton right now. Mm. Walking through my leadership team and saying, are you happy because it's tough and it's hard and we are we have been losing for a year and a half like yeah and that's not we got relegated like right like and that's Lasso's not team. anything that we're used to doing yeah but i do believe the era of losing is coming to an end quicker than continuing and i think if we get our heads around it we can do it there and I, it just it was funny that you listened because I watched that show and I'm like, my God, could that be a more timely episode? <laughs> yeah. Well, the whole show, man, like, you know how, you know, there's a few companies that got really lucky. I think that yeah. it's a mixture of lucky and, you know, sure they did great work, but it's like Zoom. We're on Zoom right now, man. You happen to be the perfect kind of company at the time where everybody had to be home. Right. right. Ted Lasso is freaking brilliant. I think it would have been successful in any time. I think it's extra successful because of how heavy everything is right now. I agree. That you I just agree. like it's like everybody needs Ted Lasso in their head. We, yeah. just, <laughs> we just need somebody that's like yeah. kind of just kind of goofy and also yeah. optimistic and hopeful and hard to beat down, you yeah. know? Um but man, I'll I'll tell you this and this may help you may not, but I was talking with a client about this as well who's gone through the same thing. And the, the, the thought that came to mind, you said, what are we on the fifth wave, the sixth wave? I was thinking about this because I'm definitely not a great surfer, but I like to surf. And so it's one of those things that you can't help but like learn life lessons out as you're out in the ocean yeah. and you're doing things, right? And I was thinking about this this last time. I take a yearly trip with some of my, my, my best friends where we go to Mexico and we surf and we play golf and we, we get stupid. And I got caught in no man's land. And no man's land is like the, the spot as you're paddling out where you just happen to be at the place where all the waves are crashing. And so you can't really paddle to the top of the wave to get over it. And you're having a hard time duck diving under it because literally the, the wave is crashing right where you are. And it is freaking exhausting and it's scary too because waves come in sets. Yeah. So you have to know that that one that just took you out, 
there's a brief pause and then another one's coming. And what that makes you do is take your oxygen really seriously. Oh, wow. So when you come up from the water, you're not lackadaisical like you would be if no other waves are coming, right? As soon as you come up out of the water, you take as deep a breath as you can, knowing you're about to go right back under a few more times. Wow. And so I was talking about this in terms of like, whether it be gratitude or celebrating the small wins or what are you excited about? Those are like little bursts of oxygen to our lungs, yeah. right? And we can treat them a little flippantly. Like, oh yeah, I know that we survived and that's pretty cool, but, and we get onto like the thing that we're stressed about. You know, I know we've got some traction over here, but, and it's like we're taking these tiny little breaths, but another wave might hit us. Yeah. And you're gonna need that to sustain yourself, like your own, right. you know, courage, creativity, whatever. And so I was just, you know, really encouraging them like, hey, if we're in the middle of some waves, like everything that is going well and everything that does bring you inspiration or excitement or confidence, like like really breathe it in, you know, like really hold that in your heart because that's going to help you survive whatever the difficulty is. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's exactly it. I mean, we, we talk about it a lot as a leadership team where it's like, are we celebrating our wins? Yes. And it's hard to do right now because there's so much other stuff going on, but we need to do a better job of it. And yeah, but it helps, sure. it helps you confront the other stuff. Yeah. Like that's the thing is like, do you want to confront the other stuff with no wind in your sails or some wind in your sails? Yep. And so when we really take the time, and it's like 20 seconds sometimes, we're not talking about like weeks of avoiding a problem. Sometimes it's 20 seconds of like truly celebrating that this is freaking awesome. You have a little bit more wind in your sails to then go and tackle the issue that's in front of you. Yep. Versus in your mind, you're kind of operating like nothing's going right. And so you get to that what's the point kind of feeling. You know what I mean? You're exactly right. Uh, so what do you think, as you guys do look forward for your business, what are some of the things that you think might be next with the changing landscape and, and that kind of thing? Like, what yeah. do you get excited about for the future of the company? Yeah, it, you know, it's, it's funny because it's it's kind of like a really focusing on on the things that were working before the pandemic that we discovered there were inefficiencies in. So if you think about it, like for us, we're, we're looking now introspectively at all of our spaces. We have four, we operate four breweries in the Cincinnati area. And we look at it, we're like we had just invested pretty heavily on buying our building. We put a beautiful rooftop on top of it so you can look at the city and it's, it's incredible space. But the main brewery we started, the main first floor of, of our group of where we very first started the brewery hasn't been touched in seven years and it's looking like it. It is. It's looking rough. And so <laughs> we've hired some of the best architects in, in the Cincinnati area to help us take through our four spaces and try to reinvent that taproom experience. What is going to draw inspiration that we love, that we hate, that we can you know, finally fix it once and for all, and then really look towards what do future spaces look like? Because I, I think that the future of beverage, not to say that the distributed beverage is going away, that selling at grocery stores and selling it, you know, at, at bars and restaurants are going away. But I think that to the extent that we can control our own destiny the most, uh, we're going to be putting our money there, mm. uh, trying to make ourselves uh, really trying to, you know, right now we're, we're, we're a distributed business over five states. That's important to growth. It's important to who we are. But the minute I sell that product to a distributor, I have no control over it anymore. And its execution is solely up to how much that distributor cares at that given time. Um, that's a really tough way to live when you're bouncing back from uh, from a pandemic um, and, and trying to do 
more with less, which I think mm. a lot of people are doing. Um, you know, and, and sure, we're dealing with all the challenges, external challenges that everyone is. Staffing crisis, you know, the idea of, of, of supply chain, like we're, there's a global aluminum shortage. We put 80% of our products in aluminum cans. Like wow. there are things, and, and like you said, waves crashing, like those waves crashing could be fatal. Like if we're not smart about them and talk through them. And so, you know, right now we're really trying to play through here is, here's the future of our business. Let's execute and control the things that we know we have total control and execution over. Love that. Yes. Rather than, rather than let's pray that we can turn the tide on uh, a distribution tier that frankly, you know, you mentioned businesses that got lucky. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that distribution tier for, for COVID got incredibly lucky. Why? Because the off-premise package product to go is incredibly more profitable. And that's where 90% of all the product went. Yeah. And it was up for the first time ever, beer was up double digits. And so you're looking at a, a business where suppliers like us and many of the craft guys are just crushed trying to, you know, trying to do what they can to stay afloat and your middle tier is like, well, you know, and they've been great. We, we have great partners. We really do, but it's, it's trying to figure out. They're not forward. in survival mode though. You're right. They're not, they're not in survival mode. Very different conversations. Right. Yes. And, uh, and so it's pretty interesting. And, and I think for us, it's taught me a lot. Like again, control our own destiny is, is that future for us. I love that, man. I mean, it's so, it's so wise, you know, I, I think the AA community, has taught us about that with the idea of the serenity prayer, right? And the, the idea of the serenity prayer is just asking God, the universe, whatever, to help us understand the difference between the things we can control and the things we can't. And we forget, like I do that almost every day. I spend right. I start, my energy, my mind, my resources start going to things I can't control, but I'm trying right. to, and I'm overlooking the things that I could control. And that's a, that's a, that's a misuse of resources. Not, not to mention a anxiety producing kind of thing, right? The other thing that's really challenging and something I'm sure you're talking to other founders about is we right now coming out of the pandemic, I said, we went from 72 to 12 to, I think we're at 50, 45 or 50 employees. We're still down roughly 18, 19% of our workforce, mm. but I'm trying to run the company as if we're back in 2019, full speed ahead, ready to go and hire. And that's the one thing we're fixing next week. Like we, we've got a big meeting next week with our leadership team where I am feeling now like our executions become lackluster because we're trying to boil the ocean. We're trying to do everything. Yeah. And we need to go back to doing the two or three things that we can do brilliantly and then bolt those things on as our staffing ramps up because we don't have the team. We don't have the people. Like, yep. And, and it is foolish to think that you can go back at our scale and do everything the way that we were doing it with 20% less people. It just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Man, I hope there are a lot of founders listening. You're displaying <laughs> a whole lot of brilliance here. It took two years, all right? It took two years of depression yeah. and long conversations to figure out this is where we are now. This is where we're going. And now we just have to, we have to execute it. Man, focus, focus, focus. You know, like you said, you used to have the 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 resources where you could focus well on the, on all of those things. Yep. But it's not the the case anymore, and so you'd be better served, to, like you said, to channel that energy. It's pruning, right? Like 
there, there's this uh, book that we someone recommended to us that we bought for our company that has helped us a lot. It's called like the pumpkin, the pumpkin plan or something like that. Uh, check it out. I've Whoa. I've really enjoyed it. Um, and the idea is this guy years ago was you know building a business that was not as profitable profitable or enjoyable as he wanted. And he was just watching the news one day, and he saw this interview of a person maybe near you. I don't remember if it was Kentucky or somewhere that was growing like the world's largest pumpkins. And they were asking the person, like, how in the world did you do this? He's like, simple, the pumpkin plan. They're like, what do you mean? He's like, well, I got rid of all of the, the, the worst and the smallest pumpkins, and I devoted all my resources towards the biggest pumpkins, and now I grow the largest pumpkins in the world. And this person started running with it as a business idea, and operated his business off of that. And it was like, I need to divert all the resources I can afford to the biggest pumpkins, like the best clients or the best product service or whatever, and double down on it. And he talked about the fear you feel of, of cutting loose some things that are even good. They're not bad. They're good. But he's like, it's the essence of pruning. It's what, it's what vineyards do, you know? Yeah. And we, man, our last six months, is I wouldn't say it's changed our business, but it has been a shift in a very positive way that we actually started diverting resources, cutting resources, to going out to other places, and we channeled it on our best clients and on our best products and services, and it's a noticeable shift. That's awesome. I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna read it this weekend. Yeah, check it out. I, I I'm not the smartest one in our business. My co-founder is, so I just knew it was the right book to read. <laughs> I said, "Hey, Jordan, will you?" You interpret it for us. <laughs> yeah, I was like, "Will you read That's it awesome. and decide what to do about it?" And he he called me. He's like, "Man, the first week I kind of read it a little bit." He's like, second week, I really picked it up, and holy crap, we're making a lot of changes. I was like, all right, just tell me what the changes are. That's awesome. <laughs> yes. Great. Awesome, man. Well, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, so we're going to jump into our lightning round questions, and then I'll let you get back to your day. Sure. So question number one, if you could ingrain one message into your entire organization, what would it be? So think about like a billboard right now that everyone might need to see every day as they pass by in the office. Oh, man. I think if there's one message for us to ingrain, it's that everything worth doing is hard. Mm. And I, I think that, because, because again, I, I, I think a lot about what we've been through and I think a lot about what we were doing again, doubling every year, understanding that that scale and pain is hard. So to go yeah. from 1 million to two, two to four, four to eight, and then back to four, like it hard. And now it's even harder to figure out how do we get that momentum back, but it is so worth it. And I, I think that is, that's probably the one thing that I would, that I would say. I love that. So good. All right. Number two, what is the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing your business? And also what was the worst advice? <laughs> um, the single best advice I ever got about growing the company was, Man, I've got some good advice along the years. I, I've really, really relied on mentors, but I think I think a lot of it has to do is is to understand that you need to take care of yourself mm. uh, as well as your business. Meaning that you know, there, there, growth is hard. We've talked about that a few times. Like it, it can be you know 60, 70, 80 hours a week, and we're in an alcohol business where our business is primarily you know. Thursday through Sunday. So not only are you having a busy work week, you're like, Oh, well, I gotta be here, here, here. Yeah. Making sure that you're able to take a step back and, and give yourself time to think. Um, I actually consider it to be a personal failure 
when I look at my calendar and there's no like empty spaces mm. uh, because I know that I'm not, I know that I'm not being nearly as effective if I'm scheduled out that, that deeply. The worst advice I ever got, I think was, was probably that, you know, it, it's, it's tough. We, we've gotten some interesting advice, but the worst advice I ever got was that, that too much growth is a bad thing. Hmm. Um, and we actually had a couple of, uh, uh, bankers tell us that, and they're like, you know, it's too much growth. They're not going to be able to sustain it. And I'm like, it's kind of interesting to say in a bank scenario, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, I I've never been a fan of that. There's, there's no such thing as too much growth as long as you're staying true to your mission. Love it. All right. Number three, we've touched on this a little bit, so you can reiterate or simplify it or, or give me an answer. I haven't heard yet, but what causes you the most stress or worry currently leading the organization? Yeah, right now it is. It, it, it's really funny, uh, Drew. I, I don't. I'm not worried so much about the intangibles. Like COVID can shut us down. Like we've got a playbook for that now. It, we are we are living in a world of firsts, and so that I'm kind of numb to that at this point. Mm-hmm. I think what worries me the most right now is it, it's all. It's not even the fear of failure. That's the wrong word, but it's how do I align this team to get as energetic as we were two years ago? Yeah. How, how are we doing enough to get our people as excited and energetic and having fun going back to that Ted Lasso thing? Like we are in beer and I, like, I, I have to say that a lot because you can sometimes walk through the office and you're like, guys, we're in beer. Like we get to have fun and like, we have company happy hours and some of those are required for work. Like it's, and so I, I think to me that the thing that's keeping me up at night right now is, is how do we make sure that our team, we're investing enough in our team and our team feels enough like they're a part of what we're doing to come back as energized as humanly possible. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think everyone's experiencing that, but that makes total sense. Okay. Number four. What is your BHAG, your big, hairy, audacious goal for this company? Oh, man. We, we want to be a, a regional brewery of excellence, right? We want, we want people to know Braxton, have fond memories of Braxton, whether they actually visit one of our facilities or not. And so for us, it's, it's, it's to try to become the largest brewery in the state of Kentucky um, and, and do that in a way that, that is committed to our communities so that people – who walk through our doors or pick up one of our products in one of our states uh, have fond memories. And, and whenever you say Braxton, they've got a, they've got a quick story about, you know, how they, how they've, you know, been with the brand. Love it. All right, buddy. Number five is going to be a fun, creative question. So a break from all the serious shit. <laughs> We're going back to the future. So if you could hop into a DeLorean and you get to go back to your past, but the rule is, you only get to tell yourself one thing as you drive by. When are you going back in your past? And what's the message that you would deliver to that younger version of yourself? Oh, boy. You know, specific to the business that we're in now? It doesn't matter. <laughs> I had one guy on the podcast go back to eighth grade and just tell that younger version of himself everything's going to be okay and you're going to make a difference in the world one day. You know? Oh, that's powerful. Yeah, he cried. I, then I don't want to go. Too oddly, <laughs> I don't want to go too oddly specific. But, uh, you know, I I think for me, it it would have been back when we started the business, 
to understand that the dis the decisions that we were making at that time would both for the good and bad. We made a lot of really great decisions and a lot of really challenging decisions. And as I sit now, knowing where we are, some of the decisions that we made, I would not have made. Mm. Uh, and we didn't know it at the time. So, you know, one of those is I, I would not have put our scaled brewery in the building that we're in today. I love the location that we're in, but we're landlocked. And right now, as we try to scale, we have to produce and package all of our product in one facility, drive it two miles to another facility to finish. That is so wildly inefficient for a manufacturing <laughs> company that I wish I would not have done that. But, you know, that being said, I, I think we've also made a lot of good decisions. So I think I'd go back to when we started Braxton and say, this thing's going to get bigger than you thought faster. Think way bigger than you were. Yeah. And that's how we're, it, it's actually really, really funny, Drew. One of the, uh, I did not get to spend a lot of time with Mark Benioff uh, at Salesforce when we got acquired. Um, but I did get to sit in one of his initial leadership team meetings uh, where he, and he, he's known about this in his book in the clouds, but where he looked at the exact target leadership team and said, you need to, most founders fall in this pitfall where they overestimate what they can do in a year, but underestimate what they can do in a decade. Yeah. And that is so true, but so hard to unpack and put into play that uh, I think that is one thing. If I, if I could go back to myself when we started and say, what Beautiful. do you really think you can do in a decade and double it? I think we would have made a couple of different decisions. Man, what a banger to end on. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Jake, this has been awesome, my friend. Thank you for taking the time to be here today, to share your story, to share vulnerably as well. I know so many founders like myself uh, are, are probably very comforted to know we weren't alone in the feelings of this last year and even recognizing how to get our minds back straight and even some of the ways that you guys are making wise decisions right now, I think is really, really helpful. So, man, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. This is so much fun. I, I really appreciate it. Awesome, man. Thank you. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results. 